now come to the time where we worship the Lord through the preached word. We've been in this sermonic series called the This We Believe. And this is a series on exploring our statement of faith. On last week, we talked about the church. And in some ways, I want us to look at that again. So we can call this the church part two. Our statement of faith on the church reads in this manner. We believe the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. Here's the focus for today's message. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. And though they are not the means of salvation when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. So today we want to look at the latter half of our statement on the church and talk about the two ordinances of the church concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper. A couple of words by way of preface. First of all, I've preached on the ordinance of baptism a couple of times in the history of the Bridge Church, and so we're going to do a really brief, quick flyby concerning baptism, and we'll spend the rest, the majority of our time looking at the Lord's Supper as we have not done an exposition on the Lord's Supper in the past. Secondly, we need to highlight the fact that our statement says that these ordinances are not the means of salvation. There is no salvific power in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Clearly, they do not save us. To attribute saving power to anything outside of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, is to believe that we are saved by works. To, to attribute saving power to baptism and the Lord's suffering is to attribute the work of Christ on the cross as insufficient. Our Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Anything we add to grace through faith is no longer grace. It's a work. So now, Let's look at these two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Look first with me at baptism. Let's look at the meaning of baptism. One meaning of 
baptism is that it symbolizes our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. It symbolizes our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, union, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, union, through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in baptism, we identify with Christ in his death, the burial, and resurrection. So it signifies our union with Christ. Baptism not only signifies our union with Christ, baptism also signifies our cleansing. Beloved, our sins have been washed away. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. We are pure in Christ. So baptism signifies our union with Christ. It signifies our cleansing. But baptism is also a naming ceremony. A naming ceremony. Remember in, in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples and by extension, his all disciples, his church, he says, go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized, we receive a new name. Our name is not necessarily just the name on the baptismal certificate, but the name of the triune God. In baptism, we receive the family name. Let me see. We have several families in our church who have adopted children. One of the, the what happens in, in several instances when a child is adopted, their name is changed. They receive the name of the family in which they are being adopted into. Meaning that they are now just as much a part of the family as the biological children are. In baptism, we receive a new name. It, it is the initiating ordinance that marks our belonging to the family of God. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, signifying that we are in the family of God. In baptism, we identify ourselves with the body of Christ, the church. Baptism is also a public testimony. It is a public witness of one's commitment to Christ. To, to be baptized is to tell others that you have made a clean break with the world and are now a member of the Lord's church and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It is our confession before men that we are on the Lord's team now. 
That's the meaning. Let's look at the mandate. As we just said earlier, we are bapt we are to baptize because Christ tells us to go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is clearly commanded by Christ for his followers to be baptized. So we are baptized in obedience to Christ. Not to be saved by Christ. We are baptized in obedience to Christ, the great head and Lord of the church. Look with me also at the mode, how we are to be baptized. We believe this, we believe in baptism by immersion. All of you goes into all of the water and comes up out of the water. Why do, we practice, why do we believe in baptism by way of immersion? First of all, the definition of the term. Baptizo in the Greek, it literally means to plunge, to dip, to immerse. So by definition, to be baptized or to baptize someone is to immerse them fully into something. But we also believe that the mode is for baptism is by way of immersion because this is the mode that was practiced by Christ Jesus himself in Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 it says in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Beloved, if Jesus came up out of the water, then that means he first has to go down into the water. That's the language of immersion. But we can also say, argued that immersion is the proper mode of baptism because of what it symbolizes. Remember we said earlier that baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When we stand there, we are standing in union with Christ, that, that, that the old man has died. We, and then we are buried just as Christ was buried to signify that we actually died. And the old man is gone for good. And then we come up out of the water, signifying resurrection or new life in Christ. So we can see clearly from both the definition the model of Christ and the symbolism of the act of baptism that the proper mode for baptism is immersion. Thus, we do not practice pouring for baptism, sprinkling for baptism, or any other mode that we can come up with. We believe in immersion. Finally, let's look at who should be baptized. And this one I call the members because what else does a Baptist preacher do but find alliteration? <laughs> we believe only believers should be baptized. Theologically, that we are called Pado Baptist or Credo, excuse me, Credo Baptists. Latin Credo meaning believe. Pado-Baptists believe in infant baptism. That probably was practiced in this building 
since it used to be uh, the home for a Presbyterian church. We believe that only confessing believers should be baptized. Why? First of all, those are the only people ever baptized explicitly, explicitly in Scripture. And I emphasize the word explicitly because some of the argument for infant baptism is that in, 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 in passages like in the book of Acts, it says that someone was baptized, both them, like the Philippian jailer, and their household. And so some who argue for infant baptism argue that since there were household baptisms, then more than likely if there were infants in the household. It don't say that. That's a reading into the text. We call that eisegesis. We believe in exegesis. We read out from the text. We also believe that only believers should be baptized because the other side argues, Pado baptists argue for baptiz baptizing infants from the practice of circumcising infants on the eighth day after they were being born in the old covenant. Circumcision was the covenant sign of the old covenant. So the argument is made that logically, if baptism is the sign, a sign of the new covenant, then children are children of the covenant through, their, through the faith of their parents. And therefore, they should be baptized. The problem with this view, first of all, is God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. But also, to argue that circumcision equates to baptism may be a faulty comparison. Because as we just read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, circumcision is not equated to baptism. Rather, circumcision is equated to the death of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Let me read it to you one more time. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Then it goes into the gospel. He was buried and he rose from the dead. So then, circumcision in the New Testament is more equated with the death of Christ. But we can also argue against infant baptism because those who hold to this view of infant baptism actually, I would actually agree with them on this point. They argue that you can be born into the covenant people of God. Just like in the Old Testament, you could be born into the covenant people of God. If you were born from a Jewish family, you were born into the covenant people of God, God's chosen people. That's the way it was under the Old Covenant. And I actually agree with them that it's the same way under the New Covenant. You've got to be born into it. Here's where we differ, differ. In the old covenant, you were physically born into the covenant people of God. Under the new covenant, you have to be spiritually reborn 
and to the covenant people of God. I didn't make that up. That came from the words of the mouth of Christ. Jesus said this in John 3, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Question, how are we born again? Don't answer too fast. Born again, regeneration is the work, the soul act of God. Watch this. If you can, look at Ezekiel chapter 36. That's, that's in the Old Testament. If not, we'll have it on the screen for you, I think. Ezekiel chapter number 36, verse 25 through 28. This is one place where we find the new covenant. Here's what the new covenant God says in the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you. By the way, that's where you go to look for the meaning in John 3 when Jesus says you must be born of water. And the spirit go back to the new covenant. Here's what it's talking about. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Here it is. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's covenant language. So then, in this new covenant, God has to give us a new heart and a new spirit. That's how we are born again. It is all of God. And here's the honest-to-God truth. An infant doesn't have a new heart. They only have the original heart that has been corrupted by original sin. Y'all don't like me talking about y'all babies like that. <laughs> Thus, I submit that they are not members of the new covenant. New birth can only be appropriated through faith in Christ. And the first part of saving faith is mental assent. By mental assent, I mean a mental awareness and knowledge of sin, its penalty, and Christ as the Son of God, being the one who died in our place, buried and rose on the third day. Mental assent also includes mental agreement with said truths. And thus... We can infer that infants are unable to comprehend the gospel, thus they are unable to exercise saving faith. Therefore, they are unable as infants to be converted and come under the new covenant. So for all of these reasons, we believe in believers' baptism. All right, that's my little speech on baptism. If you, have, if you want more detail over that, again, you can go into our sermon archives on our website and you will find two sermons on baptism. Let's look now at the second ordinance, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. And for that, we want to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 34. As we look at the Lord's Supper, let's look first at the sign or the meaning of the meal. 
Jesus makes it clear to us what it means. Verse 24, the text says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we see clearly from this text that the bread clearly represents the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The breaking of the bread symbolizes the suffering, the beating, the bruising that the Lord's body underwent underwent as he was tortured. The cup, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup, which likely would have contained wine, the fruit of the vine, represents the blood of Christ, the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf. So there's two elements in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. Once again, there are two elements in the Lord's Supper, bread, cup. Fruit of the vine, bread, cup, bread, cup. Pastor, we heard you the first time. Why are you telling us this? Because the elements are the bread and the cup from the fruit of the vine, not milk and cookies. Not pizza and Coke. Not chips and juice. Y'all laughing, but some churches have actually used these elements. This is not okay. We believe in the bread and the cup, the fruit from the vine. Remember, this is the Lord's Supper. That apostrophe S indicates ownership. He gets to determine how it's done, not us. We don't get to change it on our own whim and for our own convenience. He has prescribed the elements, so that's what we are to use. The bread, the cup. Now, as we read this, these words, this is my body and this is my blood, we immediately have to deal with a major interpretive issue. What does Christ mean by this is my body and this is my blood? Is he being literal here? The answer to this question is actually very controversial. And there are four main views that I want to share with you briefly about how people view these statements. The first view is that of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, which is the official view, which is the official Roman Catholic position. This view holds that as the priest consecrates the elements, an actual met metaphysical change takes place. The substance of the bread and the wine is literally changed into Christ's flesh and blood. So that when you actually eat it, you're no longer eating 
bread and drinking juice or wine, you are actually drinking or eating the body of Christ. And the actual literal drinking, the literal blood of Christ. That's the view of transubstantiation. The second view is called consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. Con meaning with. This was the position held by Martin Luther. And it's still held by the Lutheran church today. This view holds that Christ's body and blood are physically present in the elements. The difference between the Catholic view and the Lutheran view is, is, is that Luther did not believe that the molecules of the elements actually changed into flesh and blood. He believed they still remained bread and wine. However, Luther believed that the body and the blood of Christ are present in, with, and under the bread and wine. Thus, the body and blood of Christ are there, but not in a way that would exclude the presence of the bread and wine. The third view is, called, is often called the spiritual presence view. This is the position of reformed Calvinist. Now, a handful of you are going to actually listen. This view holds that Christ is spiritually, not physically, spiritually present in the elements. Not physically, but spiritually present. Here's how Calvin illustrated this. He used the sun. He said, he said the sun remains in the heavens, yet its warmth and light are present on the earth. In like manner, the spirit of Christ conveys to us the communion of Christ's flesh and blood. Christ is still on the throne in heaven, but like the sun has warmth and light, we have communion of Christ's flesh and blood. The fourth view. This one is called the memorial view or the Zwinglian view. This position maintains that elements are mere symbols of Christ and that he is neither physically nor spiritually present. This view says that the Lord's Supper is essentially a commemoration of Christ's death. What then can we say about these four views? First, I believe consubstantiation to be absurd. Jesus instituted this meal while he was in the flesh with his disciples. If Jesus meant that the bread and cup actually become his literal body and blood, then he would have been asserting that his flesh and blood were in two places at the same time. To believe that Jesus was in two places physically at the same time is to deny the incarnation which limited his physical human nature to one location. As to consubstantiation, I believe it to be illogical to think that two substances can be in the same place at one time. Here's what I mean. Bread is bread and a body is a body. Bread cannot simultaneously be bread and a body. 
Just as a body simultaneously cannot be a body and bread. So the last two views are better. The spiritual presence view of Calvin is much easier to digest. Imagine that. I agree with John Calvin. However, whoa, whoa, whoa. There are still some challenges with this view. Remember, Calvin said that Jesus is spiritually present with these elements. Here's the problem. There is no evidence in Scripture to suggest that Christ is any more present with his church during the Lord's Supper than at any other time during worship. We know Christ is with us. His name, Emmanuel, God with us. But he's with us through the indwelling of the Spirit. We know Christ is with us because the second part of the Great Commission, at the end, he says, Lo, I am with you always until the end of the earth. Even as we exercise church discipline, which we learned about last week, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We know Christ is with us. However, there is nowhere in Scripture where it's said that Christ is with us in a peculiar way during the Lord's Supper. Is Christ present during the Supper? Yes. Yes. Is the presence of Christ different during the Lord's Supper than during other times in our worship gathering? I believe that that is a position in search of a text. So then, by the way, this is not official Bridge Church position. Here's, this is my conviction concerning biblical evidence about this issue. Biblical evidence, to me, seems to point more towards a memorial view. Our text, on two different occasions, says that we are to do this in remembrance. The words of the Lord... Do this in remembrance of me. It is a memorial. We commemorate the work of Christ on the cross for us as we recall his suffering and death on our behalf. So when Jesus said, this is my body, it is my conviction that he meant that this represents, the bread represents my body. Not that it literally becomes his body. It represents his body. The cup represents his blood. That is my conviction. If you want to hold to a spiritual presence view, hey, you're in good company. I'm not going to fight you on that. Now, if you believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation, we need to talk. So, it's a sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the suffering and death of Christ. It's also a sign of the new covenant. It's a sign of the new covenant. When Jesus took the cup, he said, this is my new covenant in the blood. And we already read that in Ezekiel 36. What we must remember is that a covenant is an oath-bound agreement that defines a relationship between two or more parties to fulfill certain obligations and meet particular expectations for the duration of the agreement. An oath-bound agreement that defines a relationship 
between two or more parties to fulfill certain obligations and meet particular expectations. Why a new covenant though? What was wrong with the old? A new covenant was necessary because the people of God under the old covenant failed to keep the obligations of the old covenant. They were unfaithful to the covenant. They continually worship idols and, 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 and failed to obey God's commands. And as a result, they were exiled from their land and God no longer dwelled among his people. So God pronounced a new covenant. And as we said, in Ezekiel 36, 24, he says, I forgive you of your sins. I, I'll put a new heart in you and a new spirit in you. And you, and through the spirit, you will be able to walk in my statues and obey my rules. So in the new covenant, we get a new heart, a new spirit. Heart and spirit are essential to life. So we get new life under the new covenant, which means, which comes from us being born again. And Jesus says that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So what does Jesus mean when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood? We must remember that in biblical covenants, they were sealed, ratified, or confirmed by blood. Remember, under the old covenant, they would take an animal, kill the animal, cut it in two, put one half on each side. The two covenanting parties would come between the two uh, uh, halves and say we agree to this covenant and may our fate be as this animal if we don't keep it blood under the old testament Moses the people of God they agree to be in covenant Israel agrees to be in covenant with God and Moses sprinkled blood over the people confirming the covenant so when Jesus says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood he is saying that his blood by way of death, ratifies, confirms the new covenant. It binds God to us and us to God. Therefore, in the Lord's Supper, we reaffirm the new covenant established by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us. It's also a sign of the gospel made visible. Verse 26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we clearly see that the Lord's Supper is another visible expression of the gospel. Beloved, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we preach the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to any unbeliever that may be present. The Lord's Supper is the gospel made visible. So then that's the sign. What then is the significance of the meal? First of all, Paul says to us that there's an unworthy manner of taking the meal. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean then to eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? How do we figure this out? Context. Because anytime you take the text out of context, all you have left is a thank you. 
Look, we actually have to go back to verse 17 that we read in our call to worship. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So apparently what was happening contextually in this church at Corinth was that there was division in the church. We know this because if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we, there were some people who said, I am of Paul. And I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I follow Christ. So they were divided based on leaders rather than men united in Christ. Here in our passage, we see further division along socioeconomic lines between the wealthy and the poor. Look, verse 21 says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, one gets drunk. Verse 22, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So they were divided among the haves and the have-nots. The wealthy and the poor. The wealthy or the haves, they were showing up hungry. And they were so hungry that they couldn't wait for everybody to get there. So they just went in and ate without everybody being there. And obviously, while they were waiting for everyone to get there, they continually drank wine and became drunk. And Paul says, this ain't the supper. So then, given that context, what does it mean to take the meal in an unworthy manner? I'm glad you ask. It is to partake without due consideration of others that leads to division and humiliation. To partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to partake without due consideration of others that leads to division and humiliation. And beloved, this should not be the case for the church of God. Christ is not divided and neither should his body. That's the unworthy manner. What's the worthy manner? Paul says that self-examination is necessary. Before we partake of the meal, we should examine our hearts, our relationships, our attitudes about this meal and about others. And only after careful examination should we eat of the bread and drink of the cup? I'm convinced that if you have an ought against your brother and you haven't resolved it, that would be taking taken it in an unworthy manner. If you are the cause of division in the church, you will be partaking in an unworthy manner. If you got a bad attitude towards your brother or sister in Christ and it hadn't been dealt with, I believe that to be taken in an unworthy manner. An examination is necessary 
because those guilty of taking the meal in an unworthy manner will be judged. Verse 30, Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, the worthy manner. He also teaches us something else about the worthy manner of the Lord's Supper. He says something that's crucial. We got to get this and then we'll be done. Verse 33, he says, so then my brothers, here it is. When you come together, that's how we take this in a worthy manner. When you come together, important phrase, it's used at least five times in this section. The meal is for the church when she comes together. Not when she's apart, but when she comes together. Verse 17, let me just show you how it's used. Verse 17, Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come together, to eat, wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, are y'all getting this? We take the meal in a worthy manner by doing it when we are together, when we assemble together as one church. So let me be very clear. This is why we did not have or will not have a virtual communion. We ain't together. Not as one church. We're scattered. We do it when we come together as one body. Church is to gather. That's when we partake of the supper. Now, many churches are doing virtual communion and I'm not necessarily saying they're wrong. But I think textual evidence says that this is for when we come together. This is a meal for the gathered church, not the virtual church. Furthermore, as I said last week, we don't take the Lord's Supper in small groups of any kind. Bridge groups, women's group, men's groups, whatever group. That's not the place for the Lord's Supper. Small groups are, yes, a gathering of Christians. But it's not the gathering of the church. For it to be a gathering of the church, there must be, we said last week, worship in prayer, worship in singing, worship in preaching, worship in reading the word, worship in singing the word. In addition, there must be church leadership when we gather. So then we take the meal in a worthy manner by doing it when we come together. We also take it in a worthy manner by waiting for one another. The Lord's Supper is a meal of unity. That's what he's after. Be united. 
It is a meal for when we come together. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 speaks to the unity of the church, particularly when it's about the Lord's Supper. Here's what First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 says. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this meal also calls us to celebrate and commemorate the fellowship, the partnership, the union of the body of Christ. Therefore, every time we partake of this meal, we should be grateful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should recommit to striving for unity in the body of Christ. How then do we respond to the ordinances? First of all, if you've not been baptized as a believer, you need to be baptized. And we would love to baptize you. Just let us know by way of your bridge card and we will baptize you. We do this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we say in baptism, it is our union, it symbolizes our union with in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Paul in Romans 6 says that because we have been resurrected with Christ, we are now to walk in the newness of life. So then, that's how we respond to baptism. We walk in the newness of life, not the oldness of the old man. Regarding the Lord's Supper, we must remember it. Every time we take it, Never should it just be for us to do this. It's something that is just routine, but we actually need to meditate and think on truly what Christ has done for us. Christ dying in our place for our sin. But we must not do it without first examining our own minds, hearts, attitudes towards both this meal and to the body of Christ. Thirdly, we can respond by actually partaking of this meal. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to partake of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper.